is the big ponder. The anatomy of an apology. Columbia Road cuts through my Washington, D.C. neighborhood. I've been walking it since I was 10 years old, when my mom sent me to buy bread at the Italian store, or for a dozen sugary churros at the Churreria Madrid. So yeah, I'd lived here decades and never really walked one block over to 17th Street until I started to tutor some of the kids from there. I learned that they faced a choice. The teenagers standing on the corner offered a way to make money selling drugs. The teen center, just a little bit up 17th Street, offered another way. The kids worked with mentors, went on camping trips, and played on the center's basketball team. This story began 16 years ago. At a time, I knew the kids very well. They came by my house when they wanted me or called. Sunday, 12 a.m. That's Jamal on my answering machine, and I know why he's calling. I've been tipped off. He was in a fight at the teen center and told to go home, but Jamal is still making threats, serious ones. Jamal, number one, his presence is just like... You know, he's a big dude, you know, he's got the bush out half the time, his pants are hanging down, his voice is fairly deep for a 14 or 15 year old, so he just commands so much space. Then he's got the whole slang thing going on where he can, you know, he's real street savvy, man. That's Nigel. He's part of a group trying to stop violence among the neighborhood kids. We have rules about fighting, never allowed. No one says boys will be boys. So I know Jamal is calling to explain the fight to me, to make sure he won't be kicked off the basketball team. I'm the manager. Katie, this is Jamal again, Katie. I'm trying to talk to you about um, the situation, Katie. And I just wanted to know, am I still on the team? I invite Jamal over to my house to talk, and he comes with an 11-year-old boy from his building, and his baby nephew, who wants to sing in the microphone before we get going. Uh, ABC. Sing it. After me, P after me. A B C. A B C. D E F G. D E F G. A J J. K M M M P. K M M M P. Q R S. I remember the July afternoon I first met Jamal. He was 10 years old, and the fireman opened the hydrant. Jamal put his belly over the gushing water and made it spray everywhere, for all of us. Jamal is 14 now, and he's here to tell me about the fight. So, my dear, tell me what happened that night. How did this whole thing get going? Um, we had the team center. So, Alfred says, I'm telling me, I'm thinking we playing, so... Then, first he bumped me, then I bumped him. Then he pushed me, I pushed him. Then I went to the computer room, he, put, he came behind me and put me in the headlock. Describe um, what that was like. I heard it was a while. 
Yeah, I, I, I kept on telling him, or I laughed at this. Then he kept trying to put a child and threaten me, saying he was going to kill. He killed me in here. So at that point, it was pretty intense. It was like a fight. Mm. I remember talking to you, and you were trying to explain it to me, and you just kept saying that, um, and I want you to explain that, that he, he put his hands on you. What does that, explain that. Why is that a big deal? Because, man, my mother told me if somebody, somebody can say whatever they want to say, but if they put their hands on you, you got the right to hit them back. So he put his hands on me. I was about to fight him. Right there. This is the extreme danger zone, the threat of payback. Jamal could have a gun. We're not sure. One of his friends definitely does. We've seen it. So let's hear about this fight from Alfred, the older teen in this story. He's from Sierra Leone, and he grew up here in Washington, D.C. with other refugees. His job on Wednesdays is to clean up after the group dinner at the teen center. That night, Alfred was cleaning up some spaghetti off the floor, and that's how things got started. So he bumped me, and I looked at him and just like, ah, he was playing. So I was on my way walking back towards the kitchen, and all I see was someone just pushed me real hard from the back. And I fell and almost hit my head on the ground. So that's when I turned around like, he not playing. So I just chased him towards the computer lab, so he ran in here. And so I catch him, just put him in a headlock. But I was like, ah, he's a little boy, so I ain't going to fight him. I just hold him up. Let's just show him that he is a little boy. So I just put him in a headlock, hold him there for a while. So Nigel come and say, let him go. And I let him go and walk back in the kitchen and done. He started acting all tough, like he really want to fight me. Getting all rowdy about it. Went outside, went to go get his friends. And come back in, talking about, yeah, whatever, you can see me in the street. I go get my heat, my puppy and all that. So I was like, whatever, do what you do. He said he'd go get his heat? Yeah. Did so I was like, that? I wasn't tripping about it. Did you catch that? Jamal told Alfred he was going to get his heat. Heat means gun. He also threatened to pop him to shoot Alfred. The next day, I get a call from the teen center director. Use any leverage you have to get Jamal to apologize. Threaten to take basketball away. We need to squash this. So I talked to Jamal. You heard some of it. I talked to him more. He proposed some alternatives. Jamal asked if his friend could beat up Alfred. No, Jamal. Or what about waiting until the basketball season is over and then beat up Alfred? No, Jamal. This story is also Nigel's story. He's lived it and lost close, close friends to guns and prison. And he was right in the middle of the fight at the teen center, trying to stop it. Uh, Jamal had pushed Alfred pretty hard, and um, his response was, uh, to grab him and put him in the headlock. Um, and Alfred just seemed so sincere, you know what I mean? It was just like, man, this dude pushed me. My first instinct was to kind of hit him off the top, um, but I didn't, you know? Um, so he actually went through a thought process, like a, a, a options. Okay, I could hit this dude, you know what I mean? Or maybe I'll just get him in the headlock, which is a good thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> which is a good thing. So, um, yeah, progress, that's right, it, it's progress. But, um, so he got him in the headlock, and he wasn't, like, bending or twisting him or anything violently, but he did have him pretty secure, whereas uh, Jamal was in a vulnerable position, couldn't really defend himself. But 
to be honest, I mean, Alfred really had a tight grip, so I was just get into his head a little bit so he could actually think about what he was doing. Um, what which I was just like, Alfred, man, man, come on, man, not in the computer lab, man. Let go, let go, let go. He was just like, man, and he had him real tight. And he was just like, man, you lucky, man, you know. And um, at that point, he just kind of voluntarily let go. At that point, Jamal, oh boy, I thought I had a lot of pride. Uh, this guy, um, because so many people had seen it, uh, Jamal was pissed, you know what I mean? Like he felt embarrassed, um, he felt punked, and nobody sees Jamal as the guy who gets punked. Um, like we as a staff could not hold him. Um, he was very respectful in his obnoxiousness, but uh, I mean like he did, he was just like, Nigel, for real man, I don't want to hurt you man, I don't want to knock you down. Hey, but can I just go talk to Alfred? Can I just go do what I need to do? That kind of thing, and I was just like, no Jamal. Um, no, Jamal, you can't do it. Um, it's pretty much tit for tat. Let's call it a truce. Uh, those kinds of things. And he was just not having it. So at that point, he was like, you know what? I'm leaving. And guess what? I'll be back in a threat kind of a tone. And he did come back. And I, I talked to him on his way out. was just letting him know that this is what it's all about. Like a lot of the stuff that we read in the papers and see on the news, um, this is what it boils down to, a petty fight where someone either got pushed, shoved, looked at wrong, or something like that. And when the detectives come in the end, after cleaning all the blood and guts, this is what they find out it's about. Which shocks people. Yeah, which shocks people, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like the really pettiest thing, but if you do not do some sort of intervention, um, yeah, it's a recipe for disaster. So, uh, Jamal did come back. He came back with three friends, um, as if they were going to jump Alfred inside the teen center. So upon seeing them coming in, uh, I immediately was just like, look, it's no point for y'all to even come down here. Like, just like straight up, like, you should just roll right now. Yeah. Oh, Nigel, we ain't doing nothing. I mean, we just came to kind of see what was going on. So, so yeah, Jamal kind of left again. Uh, he was just like, well, since y'all not going to let me do anything tonight, uh, I'll just do something tomorrow. And it was so funny because I just saw both this ferocious, crazy dude, um, and I also saw a real vulnerable little boy, um, all within the same, like within five minutes. Um, and here, I mean, literally nobody could stop him from trying to get to Alfred. I mean, outside of the teen center, was he when he wasn't restrained, um, he was crying. You know what I mean? He looked me in the eye, he was crying. He was just like, guys, you don't understand, man. You know, and I was just like, no, I do understand. You know, and I feel you, you know. And I just saw this little boy, you know. The teen center staff kept talking to Jamal and to each other and talking. It is a talking place. There was one goal, get Jamal and Alfred to apologize to each other. Now, Alfred did this without much pressure. It was in hard for me to do. I know I was wrong for putting him in a headlock. I could uh, let it go. But at that moment of the time, it was a reaction. So I apologized to him, but... He won't accept my apologies. He won't walk out talking trash. Why do you think he's still doing that? Like seeing you and grumbling and talking trash? Like what? I guess what is he trying to prove? He's trying to show that he ain't scared, that he a man. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get his respect. Chris Dwyer of the Teen Center says a few years ago, Alfred would have balked at apologizing. The key ritual for kind of squashing it meaningfully is is just the the owning up and and kind of 
to your end of where you cross the line. Just, you just got to learn how to do that. Basically saying to the other person, hey, I want to apologize. And, and very specifically for the headlock and for saying I was going to kill you. You know, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean that, and, and I, I was wrong. You know, and on Jamal's side, hey, you know, I'm sorry for, you know, hitting you, shoving you so hard, knocking you down, and and for making the threats and going after you after that. That in both businesses was just out of line. So initially, people would sort of say, sometimes kids or other people would. Why do you make them do that? They obviously don't mean it. Because usually, usually in the moment, kids are still pretty annoyed. It's not like a heartfelt, gracious, I'm sorry. It's more like a grudging, I'm only doing this because if I don't, there'll be some, you'll have to involve my mom or be out of the center or something. You know, so, so I'll grudgingly go through the motions. So people just ask, why would you do that when they don't really mean it? And all I could say is I, I think... Initially, I just did it because it seemed like that's the right thing to do. You, you wronged somebody. Own up to it, apologize, try to make good. That's all you can do. But that simple act, even if it's going through the motions, it's a practice of what you should do. It makes clear what you should do. And even when it is grudging, the insistence that this be done, that, I think... Like, just that that happens affirms and, and, you know, reaffirms that kid's dignity that's been kind of disrespected in some way. But, you know, that's in your mind. I mean, in Jamal's mind, his, his dignity um, was taken away. And, the, and what he kept saying to me is, he put his hands on me. He put his hands on me. And I guess to get it back, the only thing he can do is to do the same. In his mind, right. how do you, how do you try to dissemble that? The, we do the. Uh, have you ever seen that think outside the box exercise? Um, they're basically, like right within the box he's thinking, within the world he knows. You're right. There's there's one course of action to rectify the situation, and that's it retaliate and, and that's what I said to him I said well I know you got to even the score you know I understand he's like I gotta get one up <laughs> I was like well Al, you're right yeah you know you don't I'm sorry to misspeak you're right it's not about evening the score it's about getting on top and uh but I was like but where does that leave you he's like well I don't care wherever it goes that's where it's gonna have to go I was like well I know and you know where that can lead I don't think he conceptualizes all this. I guess all I do know is when you insist on it, it gets easier. It's not at all uncommon for someone, Jamal, who's new to the center this semester, to show up and, you know, have been really a kid on the street in a lot of ways for, for a while now, you know, to have an enormous problem with this idea. <laughs> Own up, apologize, you know, graciously accept an apology? You gotta be kidding me. So, all I know is, you insist on it, it's amazing if you give it a little time, you keep pushing insistently, just, just in by saying, this is what you need to do. Jamal seemed open to the next step. As soon as we said, well, we have Alfred here, let's go, then Jamal started the shutdown. No, that ain't gonna happen, uh-uh. And so, 
and as he said, it didn't happen. Alfred did his part. Jamal was having none of it. Though I did think it find it a little interesting that his anger he no longer directed at Alfred. He no longer directed at me or Nigel. He just looked down and just was like, "Man, fuck this apology shit, man." <laughs> you know. So he just looked down and cursed the apology. So, uh, uh, and it wasn't even him doing it. He was just listening to one given to him. When we do this, I've never had a problem continue. When we don't do this, it, just, it, almost, it always comes back. Even little times when it's not even a fight yet. I think maybe we should squash it, but I'm busy. I let it go. That'll come back up as an argument or a fight. Whereas even the worst fight, we go through this, it doesn't continue. So there's some little, that's what I was going to finish my point about why we do it, is that when they go through it, it gets easier for them. And I just found, for practical purposes, it just seems to work when you just drag them through it. Jamal stopped going to the teen center. Nigel's job was to stay in touch with him. So whenever he saw Jamal on the street, he'd stop and talk. So what happened from there, um, I had to, saw Jamal and I had a CD that he really wanted, a Kanye West CD. So I um, happened to have that with me. Just like, here you go, Jamal, why don't you come take a walk with me? So um, he usually isn't hesitant. There's usually something always on his mind. And um, he, you know, we walked back to the teen center together. He was just like, Nigel, I'm not apologizing, um, but I'll walk with you. And that speaks to Jamal's character so well because he's kind of torn um, in between what he wants to do and, you know, just, kind of what the tradition is out here on this block, you know. And that's okay, you know what I mean? It's a process that you go through. Um, the skill is being able to recognize it, you know. So um, what happened from that point was Jamal came in. He was really receptive. Um, Chris and I both kind of corralled him and, and talked with him to find out, you know, what was, what was the deal? Let's actually talk it through. And uh, he said some things that were p powerful. He was just like, well, Alfred threatened my life and I don't play. And I, and I talked to him about times in which my life was threatened and, and how I carried it to the extreme um, and what I learned from it. And I think he really heard that. You know what I mean? I think he really heard that. Um, and I just tried to give him an idea of how big the world is. He is so, Jamal is so 17th Street focused. Um, I try to get his mind off just this little block and more so to the big picture. Um, one of the ways I do it, uh, or that we do it, is by letting him know how much power he has. Um, Jamal's a, a leader, a subconscious leader. Um, every time you see him, there's like a herd of kids right behind him. And um, I think that just speaks to his personality, his presence. Um, just so many great qualities in Jamal that you see in the greatest leaders, you know. So, yeah, I try to reaffirm that stuff and tell him, you know, that, that could be used negatively or positively in, in the balls in his court. Um, but whichever way that he goes, um, people are going to follow. And I think he's starting to recognize that. Um, so we had a really long conversation in here. Um, he, he was open to the fact of, uh, like, really giving out for, like, a handshake, possibly a hug, and calling the truce. Um, but when we paired the two to do it, I mean, yeah, he just couldn't do it. He was really holding on to his pride. And again, that was okay, you know, because he was open to it. He tried. Um, but at that point, he was just like, man, Alfred was man enough to step up and apologize for his, for his part. And Jamal was just like, you know what, screw this. You know, screw it. Um, 
and just kind of left. And it takes time, you know. Um, that's where you got to kind of let go of all the stuff and all the the happy endings we want as human beings and, and just kind of realize that things take time. And then um, what really brought everything to a head was when uh, one day I was just walking out, out front and I haven't seen Jamal in the neighborhood. I might mention it, I might not, I'm depending on how I'm feeling. Um, so at that point I didn't mention it, I was just going to go greet him as I always do. And he was just like, Nigel, um, I want to apologize for the way, I mean he just totally shocked the hell out of me. He was just like, Nigel, I want to apologize for the way I acted last night. Um, and he was just like, man, I was dead wrong. You know, and it came from the bottom of his heart because he looked me right in my eye. And I was just like, wow. I was just like, <laughs> first I was stunned, just kind of quiet for a second. Then I was just like, wow. Kind of put my teen center hat back on. I was just like, um, you know, I'm glad that you told me and shared that with me, but I think Alfred should be the one that you should apologize to. And he was just like, okay, I apologize. And still, that's not the end of it, you know. I mean, although that's a happy ending, you know, almost enough for me, you know, and for the staff here, we just really wanted to put some closure on this with the actual handshake, um, which later happened. Um, but what I see down the line, because he's a bright kid, um, if that stuff's tapped into, um, there's no limit. And I know we say this with every kid, but with Jamal's case, it's just special. There's no limit to what he can do and, and how he could be such an influence um, in a good way to this whole community, you know. After he apologized, Jamal kept one foot in 17th Street with the corner guys, and he kept trying new things. He did an internship and then a trip, a big trip. His basketball coach, Brian Weaver, took him to Guatemala to a Mayan village with the leadership program Hoops Sagrado. Jamal and the other D.C. kids coached basketball, and the Mayans taught them Spanish. Brian wrote about that summer, about how Jamal learned to see himself in the stranger, in the other. He learned some ideas the K'iche' Mayans valued. I am the other you. You are the other me. Brian says one day Jamal saw a few boys who wanted to join the basketball games. The Guatemalan teachers called them good-for-nothings. When Jamal heard that, he walked over and stood with them. He didn't say a word, just stood there. From that day on, those kids were never late for camp, and if they acted up, Jamal would go stand with them. A few years later, I walked down the hill to do an errand. As I came out of the store, the whole street was taped off, yellow tape and police everywhere. I could see an upside-down car, and someone said there was a shooting. At home, the calls came. It was Jamal who had been shot, coming out of a funeral for a friend. He died right there on the street. He was 21 years old. Brian, Nigel, Chris, myself, and others gathered up Jamal's friends to talk. We urged them not to retaliate. This all happened a decade ago. It took me a long time to feel I could write about it. When I listened to the interviews, it was wonderful to hear Jamal's voice again and to understand how much Chris and Nigel know. 
Nigel went on to found his own youth group in the neighborhood, and he's helped many young people. And Brian is still taking kids to Guatemala. For my part, I tutored a kid in the neighborhood, and I sent him to college. For The Big Ponder, this is Katie Davis in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to The Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin-Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the Big Pond that make this series possible.